Good afternoon. This is Noon Edition. I'm your host, Stan Jastrzewski. Today we will talk with Indiana University public health expert Lloyd Colby and East Asian languages professor Scott Kennedy about how the state and more specifically Indiana University interact with China as we draw nearer to next month's Beijing Olympics. But uh, you should be uh, advised. You can be a part of this program as well. Feel free to call us. The phone numbers at which you can reach us are 855 855- 0811. That's if you're in the 812 area code. Or you can call us toll-free from anywhere. 877-285-9348 is that phone number. You may also email us now or, or anytime really at noon at indiana.edu. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Lloyd, I'll start with you. Um, I understand you've been working recently with helping Chinese school children have more access to physical education programs. Is that correct? That is correct, uh, Stan. Uh, We just returned from a three-week trip to China. Actually, this is their first year on an effort called Sunny Schools China. Uh, About this time last year, President Hu actually made the announcement to say that all schools in China, all 1.6 million schools in China, serving about 320 million uh, Chinese students, would be providing daily physical education programs for Chinese students, uh, the president recognizes the increase in obesity and the decrease in physical fitness of young people in that nation and the potential public health problems that uh, that could cause. So uh, we're fortunate to have an opportunity to work with China and to learn from what they're going to do. About how many children are we talking about who will have access to these programs? Well, if you look at the United States, just by comparison, we have about 55 million um, young people in K through 12 schools. China has about 320 million. We have about 120,000 schools in the United States. China has 1.6 million uh, schools. So the level of the effort to do this will be fairly fairly big. How do you how do you help scale up efficiently from the way things are done here to the way things are done in such a quickly growing nation as China? That's going to be part of the problem. Um, the culture is also going to be part of the problem. Um, China, uh, as my my colleague Scott Kennedy, I'm sure uh, can attest, is a is a very different nation in that there's wide disparities between urban and rural populations, between um, wealthy and poor populations, between eastern provinces and and western provinces. So many of these schools are in uh, very uh, difficult places uh, to to actually reach. Um, How do we train teachers to offer the kinds of programs that can increase physical activity? especially when parents uh, increasingly want more study time for their children. That's part of the problem. Uh, They want their young people to be studying more so that they have an opportunity to get into better colleges or to get into colleges. And so we anticipate that there will be some backlash from parents uh, worried about if we increase the amount of time that schools are providing for physical activity, we may be decreasing the amount of opportunity that their young people uh, would have to score well on tests that would get them into college. Is there any opportunity, do you think, to change the national mindset such that the synergy between physical health and mental health that has been so often espoused by scientists and doctors here can be accepted there? It it already is. Um, As one of the things that China has done to address what they recognize, uh, especially since 2003 with the SARS epidemic there, their need to evolve a public health system, they fully understand how vital it will be to increase the physical activity of an increasingly sedentary uh, population. Um, And in fact, uh, the, the problem is probably worse in the United States. Uh, China's young people, if you look at uh, all of their young people, about 26 percent are overweight or obese. Uh, Most of those are in the eastern provinces. Most of those are in urban areas. Um, In the United States, we have a far higher obesity rate in Indiana. We're in our 30, 34, 36 percent, something like that. So uh, they have a much larger population, so potentially a a much greater uh, burden on their economy. Uh, In 2005, they were spending about 5 percent of their gross domestic product uh, on providing health care services. 
for people who were ill. Uh, we were paying at that point in time about 15 percent of a much larger uh, GDP in the United States. And if you look at uh, what happened in U.S. schools in the 1990, uh, 1990s, the decade of the 90s, there was a precipitous decline in the number of schools that provided daily physical education programs. Illinois is the only state that requires physical education programs in the schools. Most schools don't provide physical education at all um, and uh, uh, it certainly is showing uh, in the increasing rates of obesity and resulting diabetes that we see in young people in our nation. So this could be an opportunity for two nations, two great nations to work together and understand what they might learn from each other and do together to uh, help improve the lives of their they're young people. Scott, I want to talk to you about the economy in just a second, but one one question. <laughs> Was there any reticence uh, or had there been any research done by the Chinese officials with whom you worked when they found out you were from Indiana, a state with such an obesity problem and you were going over there to try and fix their obesity problem? Uh, that, that's a great question. Um, fortunately, I had worked uh, in China for about 25 years before coming here to Indiana University. Um, Although I have to say I'm packing a few more pounds myself that I would like to. So that, that could be a credibility <laughs> problem in itself. Scott, uh, one of the things that, that Lloyd mentioned was that this will – this represents a change to what it means to the Chinese economy. Now, you've dealt with issues regarding how the two nations interact. And, and one of the things that we've obviously seen increasingly in China, especially in the last 10 to 20 years, has been that it's, it's really been a, a forward-looking technological and economic country and it's trying to you know, put itself on the world stage more rather than being the sort of cloistered nation it was for so long. What does this mean for the necessity to have a sort of a more transparent economy and, and, and uh, situation maybe even governmentally in China in order to try and deal with problems like this? What, what must they do and what are the, the down-the-road implications here? That's a very good question. Obviously, um, economic reform uh, started in China in the late 1970s. We're now in the 30th year of that and China's economy has improved uh, tremendously from a per capita income of about $60 per person to now about $2,600, $2,700 per person, quite a big jump. Uh, in the process, they've already started a whole variety of reforms um, with not only economic institutions but with governance structures. And as they try to move from becoming not only a, you know, from a manufacturing uh, powerhouse that they are now to becoming more innovative and moving up the value-added chain as well as dealing with the more complex type of issues that come with being a modern country that, that Lloyd pointed to, um, they have to be even uh, continue to more forcefully modify uh, their, their political institutions and ways of governance. Um, they have made some progress in becoming more transparent. Uh, they now uh, regularly publish rules and regulations in draft form and open and have those open for comment and discussion. Um, the internet, despite the fact that in many areas it is, is still heavily controlled in China, uh, e-government has uh, come into focus there. You wouldn't expect a country uh, where uh, half of its uh, people live in rural areas and the per capita income is much lower than the U.S. to have the internet be so important, but it started uh, to develop. Uh, but they need greater systems, institutionalized processes of accountability, of ways that people can air their grievances and their conflicts can be resolved um, because as they become more modern and grow and interact with the rest of the world, those type of systems are going to be increasingly important. As China has moved into greater participation with the U.S., gaining most favored nation trading status and things like that, obviously there's been a greater exchange of ideas, especially between our leaders and theirs. Do you believe that there still needs to be more change made at least in the mindset of Chinese leadership to accept programs uh, like the one that, that Lloyd is working on to try to uh, you know, offer them help that they might have been reticent in the past to accept? I think you know, one of the amazing quiet stories about China is the fact that behind this tremendous economic change which everyone sees and is on the news and in our papers all the time, 
is that China has been literally going to school for the past 30 years, um, it, learning about all types of things. Lloyd's experiences are just one of a number of IU faculty uh, and experts from Indiana who have gone to China, who are involved in programs uh, there on a regular basis. Uh, but this encompasses uh, experts from across the U.S. and from Europe and Japan. Uh, the Chinese have aggressively looked for uh, best practices around the world in a whole host of areas. Now, the, the rub comes when they try to decide what to adopt. And part of uh, that process involves figuring out what's culturally acceptable, what's politically acceptable, what's politically expedient. Uh, and therefore, sometimes the systems and programs that Lloyd and others uh, bring to China and demonstrate to China aren't what they end up accepting for a variety of these reasons. Um, and therefore, the outcome isn't always what one would, would hope for as well. So I think that translation process is where we need to focus on improving uh, not just the presentation and interaction, which is already extremely well developed. Um, I think amongst China's leaders, you see sort of a, of a range of views from those who are really accepting of, of international norms and best practices elsewhere uh, and those who are, more who are more concerned about questions of sovereignty or problems that uh, may arise in accepting practices which could undercut the Communist Party's hold on, author on power. Uh, and so there's this whole mix of issues that uh, arise uh, in the process of, of this uh, learning that they're going through. What are some of the, the good news stories that you've heard that maybe are under the radar that, uh, that, that you're aware of that you think maybe don't get enough press in terms of uh, how China is, is pushing itself forward and pushing itself toward advancement? Have you had any, any firsthand experience with, with uh, news like that? Yeah. Um, there's lots of stories like that. I think that what's important to keep in mind with China is that things – are usually never as good as the propaganda says, but it's really never as bad as, as we fear. Uh, I think one of the good stories uh, that isn't as that we don't get enough attention on is is the emergence of uh, civil society in China, uh, and it's become most evident in the wake of the earthquake in Sichuan that occurred in May. Um, in the wake of the earthquake, you had. Thousands of Chinese non-governmental organizations or NGOs that had originally been created to deal with other types of problems, uh, the elderly, um, homeless, uh, public health issues in general. Uh, and in the wake of the earthquake, they immediately mobilized. Uh, the Chinese government and the People's Liberation Army did as well. But there's this general perception that volunteerism doesn't exist in China because it's got a, this authoritarian government, top-down system, this uh, culture of obedience. And in fact, what we saw is massive mobilization uh, on the part of, of average Chinese um, through uh, regular uh, traditional forms of networks as well as through the internet, uh, email, etc. And that's really been an extremely important part in the recovery effort uh, that I think solidifies their importance in China and it's not just going to be the government dealing with individual Chinese disparate groups but these, these uh, parts of civil society which, which the United States has so well developed and we know is so critical to our own, own uh, country. A reminder, you can join in our discussion this afternoon. The phone numbers where you can reach us are 812-855-0811. You may also call us toll-free at 877-285-9348 or send us an email at noon at indiana.edu. Um, whoever wants to answer this is fine. I'm wondering what are the, the cultural hurdles the two of you think are – are left to overcome in order to do things like make sure the Chinese population is healthy, make sure they are well-educated, make sure they are uh, well-compensated for their work. And what can uh, folks from Indiana uh, do to try to uh, help them? And, and it doesn't – and I, I don't mean help in the sense of westernize. Uh, I mean help them, you know, push themselves forward such that they are – 
they are fairly treated and, and that they are, um, you know, on par with much of the rest of the globe in terms of what they're what they have access to. Stan, I think that's a good question, and I, to me, it uh, it illuminates the importance of uh, President McRobbie's uh, new global strategic plan for Indiana University. Uh, certainly, we've had. Uh, some opportunities since it was uh, released in March to study it very thoroughly. And I, I think IU should be quite proud uh, of uh, the plan as it exists. Uh, and just looking at one nation like China, it offers a whole range of strategies that would allow two nations, two universities or, or one university and many uh, – in Indiana University and, and many other universities in China. To, to work together uh, in real ways, to learn together, to provide uh, joint research, uh, provide uh, education together, uh, implement service activities together, to bring more Chinese students and scholars here to IU and to send more of our colleagues. Uh, I just learned from Scott that he's going to spend a year uh, in China uh, coming up pretty soon. I think it's those types of processes that are articulated uh, in um, a brilliant strategic plan that will allow two nations that easily could become perhaps uh, pathologically uh, competitive to have an opportunity to collaborate more. Uh, and if those two great nations could do that, I think they would add a lot to stabilize a world that is fairly unstable at this point in history. Yeah. I can just make a couple additional points. I think if we just think in terms of traditional cultural norms and values uh, as potential obstacles to China's uh, coming of age in this world, we can just look at other countries in East Asia, uh, Japan uh, and South Korea – uh, the island of Taiwan. And you can see those are places which still have uh, traditional values where uh, Confucian values and other uh, religions are still pr quite prominent. The importance of family is still highly valued. Um, where government involvement in public life and pr individual life is, is still highly important. Yet these countries uh, and places have been able to adapt and grow and learn uh, and modernize. Uh, so just as your, your question pointed out at the beginning, Stan, it's not a, a matter of, of whether China needs to westernize. Uh, they can still hold on to a lot of these traditional values and grow. I think the biggest ins problems that China faces is uh, one of these physical issues that they have in terms of the environment and resources and, and institutional uh, issues related to uh, governance structures and things like that, uh, which we've already talked about. Uh, culturally, uh, I think there's a lot of room for flexibility for maintaining uh, cultural distinctiveness and, and heritage all, all the while adapting those to, to new uh, contemporary ways of life. You mentioned that there are a number of, uh, you know, a number of things that occur to me that seem very similar here. For instance, similarities to we have a push every election cycle, especially toward things like family values. And, and it seems that, that a lot of the time, the ocean between the two nations serves as some sort of gaping hole in terms of how people think about our society and people think about their society. But in fact, aren't they similar in, in many ways that, that people don't you know, think about? I, th I, I would totally agree. Uh, the distinctions between East versus West, tradition versus modern. Um, I, I, I hear that in both places from my students here at IU and, and when I go to China. And I have to keep reminding them that we are a mix of cultures and philosophies and principles. My Chinese friends like to say that Americans are highly individualistic and selfish. Yet I remind them that I have a nice family, that I value my children, that they value me, at least I hope so, <laughs> and um, that uh, strong families are something that we try to build uh, in, in the United States. We're not always successful, of course, and families come in many shapes and sizes. Um, yet these, these differences uh, that are, are easy to draw out, I think they end up – we want these type of generalizations because we, these places are 
far away. We don't know a lot about them. We don't have a lot of individual personal experience with them. And so uh, we, we tend to rely on these, these stereotypes. And to some extent, there, there's some truth, truth to them in terms of the proportions and things like that. But um, I think if, for people that go to China and last year, 42.5 million foreign visitors went to China. Uh, including uh, several million Americans. Um, when you meet Chinese face-to-face, you come away with a different uh, experience. I was – when I first went to China in 1988, uh, I thought China was – I was going to see a lot of folks in Confucian robes and gowns uh, playing traditional Chinese instruments and things. And I met real people who face real problems, uh, the types that, that Lloyd and I have already been discussing and trying to, to deal with those. Uh, and, and that's really what's e- even more fascinating about China than these traditional stereotypes that, that keep uh, sticking with us. Earlier, Scott, you mentioned the, the internet and, and how it is largely state-controlled in, in a lot of places in China. Do the two of you believe that technology like the internet is helping to slowly bridge the knowledge gaps between the two countries and is, some, is that something that Indiana, which is, is working both – here at the university and uh, under the the government's um, uh, guidance to try to build its technological backbone. I mean, can the state help, you know, the entire nation of China? I I think the internet is is critical. I I would defer to Scott to how much control is uh, either evolving or deteriorating among the the Chinese government. on the internet. But even low-tech um, technology like uh, television, it should be interesting to watch the nations of the world uh, view a new China as they watch the Olympics, Olympics in Beijing uh, this August. I think uh, it will uh, modify stereotypes as Scott suggested in many people's mind around the world about what the Chinese people are like, uh, the the type of lives they live, what Beijing looks like. Um, uh, And indeed, um, the opportunities that uh, universities now have to uh, actually interact um, as nations can interact um, virtually through conferencing and teaching courses back and forth, which uh, we hope to do in School of HPER with our colleagues at various uh, Chinese universities. I think uh, all of these would provide opportunities to open up both countries to give China uh, a better uh, understanding of what uh, life is like in the United States also. The internet, as with most technologies, you know, has both its its advantages and disadvantages, uh, and the same is true when it's applied to China. China has about three hundred and fifty million internet users, uh, more than the entire population of the United States, um, and in many ways, it's helped create opportunities for companies in China, for uh, these non governmental organizations, professional societies, and and others. Uh, email. Text messaging, <laughs> all the all the all the good things, uh, and Chinese have been able to surf uh, in the international internet. Uh, in in many areas, there are places that uh, there's the Chinese firewall blocks uh, Chinese from seeing. Um, well, I think what you have in China in terms of the liberalization of the internet is this continual cat and mouse game, where you have uh, Chinese uh, government uh, asserting. Uh, various types of sophisticated controls on the internet and then different types of users figuring out ways around those. And you see this continual sort of ratcheting up. Uh, they try one way to stop people and people find another way around it. And that type of game is is uh, continuing. I think it's it's going to, to go on. Um, I think one of the things that's um, important to recognize with China is that although 350 million people have access to the internet, that means there's a billion people in China that do not. Uh, and there is a huge digital divide within China, not just between developed countries and, and non-developed countries, but within China between coastal, uh, well-developed urban areas and most of the rest of China, most of rural China, poor China, where people not only don't have access to the internet, even more importantly, they don't have the physical education or other types of regular needs that, that they have. And it's that growing fissure within China that uh, needs to be addressed 
And what, what do you think, Lloyd, we, we might be able to do to help bridge that gap? Well, I, I think the Chinese themselves uh, are uh, focused on bridging that gap. Um, uh, in their 11th five-year program of work, um, that is one of their major uh, goals uh, and the agenda for the, the next five years is to, to try to reduce that um, disparity. Um, we can see it illustratively in public health problems. Um, Scott was saying that there are um, 350 million uh, internet users, uh, which I think is great. Uh, I'm sorry to say there are 350 million tobacco users in, in China and uh, most of those are low-income um, poor people, um, although uh, tobacco use is much more dispersed throughout China than it is in the United States. We see a much greater amount of uh, tobacco use among poor people in the United States um, than we do in China. So I, I think uh, it, uh, it is something that is on the agenda for the, the uh, government of, of China. Uh, China is trying to build a more equitable health care system and a public health system uh, that can address the, the problems that they anticipate. Uh, they had a wake-up call in 2003 when they had their first SARS case, uh, which they handled very differently in terms of transparency. Uh, they were trying to reduce the uh, visibility of the problem uh, within uh, the world at, at, at that point in time. Uh, and as a result, have moved forward very aggressively, very progressively to try to address the problems of the poor people um, uh, more than trying to address the problems of the wealthier people uh, that can afford health care. And health care is a, a major problem in, in China, providing health care and having access to, to health care in China. All right. Well, we need to take a break momentarily. We will talk more about health and specifically about the Olympics as we, as we come back on Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Movie Play and Opera Reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at WFIU.org. We are back on Noon Edition. I'm pleased to be joined today by Lloyd Colby and Scott Kennedy from Indiana University. A reminder, you can get in touch with them and with us. Call us at 855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348 or send us an email if that's more your speed at noon at indiana.edu. Lloyd, before the break, we were talking about what can be done to improve the general health and, and welfare of the Chinese population. And I'm wondering, you mentioned earlier plans for online courses uh, through the the School of Hyper here at, at IU. And uh, I, I'm wondering where you plan to go with those in the near future to, to help that situation. There are a variety now, as you may know, of software programs that uh, allow one to conduct classes uh, virtually. So one can set up uh, through the internet uh, a classroom space um, in uh, Beijing University and in Indiana University and have that course uh, taught uh, and, if necessary, translated 
um, with the students interacting on both sides of, of the world globally. Um, and interestingly enough, where we used to have to do out of this building, as I recall, we used to need to use a satellite and we would have to bounce the satellite twice to get to, to Peking. Um, now with the internet, we can go s straight through and use the, this new technology. Um, so rather than having Scott uh, fly over and spend a year in China, um, one can actually work face-to-face -face with colleagues uh, within China. And uh, my sense is uh, Michael McRobbie with his background in IT fully understands that capacity and really has the potential to shrink the world and enable us to – uh, especially with uh, fuel prices rising and the difficulty of traveling, uh, have many more opportunities for meetings, seminars, conversations, uh, working opportunities together. Are there course plans or curricula that are already on the drawing board? We are. We're, we're looking uh, with uh, Peking University out of the School of Public Health um, to put together some initial seminars. Uh, in fact, uh, two years ago, we began uh, using the satellite to bounce uh, signals uh, so that we could have seminars. But uh, now we're looking to do that on a more regular basis. Scott, I want to hear more about uh, your, your upcoming trip. Why are you going? Who will you visit? And what are your goals? Well, um, I'm going to be based uh, at Beijing University uh, in the capital. And I'm arriving just after the Olympics and things quiet down. And uh, – the purpose of, of my visit is, is to do research on the topics that I care most about. I'm uh, in the departments of political science in East Asian languages and cultures here at IU and I am fortunate enough to direct a research center for Chinese politics and business here as well. And um, my own work uh, is looking at China's in integration into the global economy, uh, the WTO and how China is becoming a more important player at – uh, setting the rules of the game uh, internationally uh, and the things that affect uh, the American economy, uh, others around the world and how the Chinese are going about learning. We've already been talking about the, the Chinese learning but they're learning how to play uh, in this global economy. Um, and so that's what I'll be focusing uh, mostly on in terms of my own research and then trying to develop relationships for uh, the research center uh, with Chinese universities as well. You mentioned setting the rules of the game and, and obviously China is not doing much of that but they are going to affect the American economy greatly next month when the Olympics take place. Um, NBC has already announced it's going to run some some ungodly thousands and thousands of hours of Olympic programming and I, I'm wondering, you know, IU obviously has athletic connections to the Olympics but what are some of the, the connections that we, we might not know about other than sending athletes who have competed at IU to Beijing? I mean how else is the university and the state connected? We work very closely uh, out of the School of uh, Health, Physical Education and Recreation, for example, with Beijing Sports University, the Shanghai Sports University and other uh, sports universities in, in China uh, and we'll continue to do that. Um, uh, anticipating having many of their elite athletes over here offering seminars and um, programs uh, that could help teach uh, some of our elite athletes. But interestingly enough, uh, we anticipate that after the Olympics, uh, China will increasingly focus on providing opportunities and indeed encouraging uh, the entire population to engage in physical activity taking more of that focus away from uh, creating elite athletes, uh, which we certainly anticipate that they'll continue to do, but uh, working through a wide range of agencies, a uh, wide range of ministries in, in China to try to increase the uh, physical activity of the entire population. As Scott was saying, with 1.3 million um, people who uh, – 80 percent of the illnesses of, uh, that are existing in China at this point in time are chronic diseases and most of those chronic diseases result from uh, weight and uh, tobacco use. Uh, so China is not going to be able to pay the bill just as we are not being able to pay the bill as our chronic disease rate rises 
and we only have 300 million people uh, with 1.3 billion people that are very concerned about uh, trying to do something strategic and very large to control the epidemic, uh, the pandemic of chronic diseases in China. And, and what about that, that cultural exchange of having their elite athletes come to America? I know there has been um, problems, for instance, if a player from a Chinese basketball team is drafted into the NBA, it is sometimes several years before they are allowed by the, the state to come to America to play basketball. Would you anticipate any problems of having that, that sort of cultural exchange from there to here? We don't anticipate any at, at this point in time. China has not indicated uh, any reluctance um, at, at this point in time um, uh, to do that uh, as they have not uh, been reluctant to share with us the perhaps equally if not more important um, exchange of scholars illustratively. We were in Shanghai Sports University where many of their researchers were looking at um, the effects of exercise on immunology, specifically on cancers and sharing uh, our expertise with theirs and figuring out how to use their increasingly sophisticated labs. As China is becoming a more prosperous nation, they're investing that prosperity into the type of equipment that we don't have here at uh, Indiana University. So we're looking forward to working with them uh, and using the more advanced equipment that they have uh, uh, to help us do research here. You mentioned there were something like 350 million tobacco users in China and, and said that you hoped that after the Olympics there would be an increased push towards better health. Uh, do you believe that, uh, that showing uh, – messages from this country that are, for instance, anti-Philip Morris or anti-RJR or somebody like, like that that is a major tobacco producer and that has been much maligned uh, publicly and through lawsuits in the last few years in this country can help uh, that push go forward and help drop the number of tobacco users in China? We hope so. We think we've learned a lot from the past three decades of trying to uh, reduce uh, tobacco use in the United States, which we have considerably. Um, and the World Health Organization uh, has been very effective uh, in having the nations of the world sign on to the Framework Convention to uh, Control Tobacco, which is the very first health treaty that ever existed in the, in the world. Um, China is one of those signatories and uh, we're interested in working and learning with China about how better to implement uh, the framework convention. Yeah, if I could add to that, I, th I think to some extent the messages um, that we send China uh, on this issue uh, are, are somewhat conflicted. I know the Center for Disease Control and Prevention has been uh, quite proactive as have public health specialists from around the United States. Uh, but the way the United States treats uh, tobacco domestically and as a public health issue uh, differs somewhat when we go across our borders. Uh, the U.S. trade representative uh, whose goal it is to lower barriers to U.S. exports and investment around the world also represents uh, the U.S. tobacco industry. And so while the uh, CDC and others have been pushing for China to improve public health, the U.S. trade representative has been trying to push China to lower barriers to uh, American tobacco or uh, foreign tobacco generally in the Chinese market. Uh, and so um, that's – it's a legal product of course and, and, and therefore it's part of the USTR's responsibility to help American industry. But there is uh, – the, the message is a little bit clouded there. I think in terms of China domestically, there is this great – greater commitment that we're seeing uh, partly uh, reflected by the Olympics to improve public health. Uh, but also in the area of tobacco, they're, they're also conflicted as well. Uh, Ten percent of China's tax revenue comes from tobacco. Um, parts of the country, uh, the provincial governments depend heavily on this tax. Uh, and so although China doesn't encourage advertising for tobacco, uh, its public education campaigns in terms of dealing with smoking um, are, are on the books and they are implemented. But when I meet with Chinese uh, in the country when I'm there, um, they looked at me quite surprised. It's still – this may be a cultural issue but 
Um, Chinese regularly offer and expect one to take a cigarette when you have a meeting. Uh, in many occasions, Chinese until very recently uh, in government offices smoked while they worked. Uh, that's recently been a ban that's been instituted. Uh, but uh, smoking is still part of public life and it's primarily men who smoke in China. But the rate at which women are uh, increasing smoking is on the rise as well. So I think to some extent there's uh, – China feels conflicted in terms of uh, how it re- uh, deals with this. Uh, but we could, we could also give a more consistent message as well. And it's a good example. I completely agree with Scott. I think it's a good example of how the two nations are very similar rather than, than different. Uh, the, the U.S. is signatory to the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control but the Congress has not signed the, the Framework Convention at this point in time yet. What do you make, Scott, of the, the dichotomy between pushing uh, – sending them tobacco in order to help make the U.S. money during – especially during the time of a struggling economy and – the need to keep Chinese healthy, uh, it seems like there's a, there's a big gap in, in logic here somewhere. Well, uh, like any government, we have many different parts of the bureaucracy, each of which has its mission to fulfill. And therefore, uh, sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing or even if they do know what they're doing uh, and working not in coordination with each other, they, they continue on those paths anyway. The goal to promote uh, a increased uh, open Chinese economy that plays by the global rules of the game in principle is extremely important. Uh, it's been one of the chief reasons China has been able to develop uh, as, as quickly as it has and over this sustained period of time. Uh, at the same time, um, there's types of products and trades which we need to uh, think closely about. Uh, no one is talking about a ban or anything like that. Um, but we have to uh, be able to implement both goals and figure out what our priorities are in, in doing so. I think overall in terms of how this – how the US has, has dealt with China has been pretty good uh, since the late 1970s. Our, our policies towards China have generally uh, been both in China's interests and our interests. And uh, there are just some areas which we might need to tweak a little bit and this is one of those, one of those areas. Are there other products uh, perhaps even specific to Indiana like biofuels, something that, that the Mitch Daniels administration has really pushed uh, in its time in office that, that we could work on trading perhaps more with them especially as they have a growing automotive economy? There's so much talk these days about the number of cars in China and India you know, affecting gas prices and speculation and whatnot. Could we be as a, as a state sending biofuels to them more and reduce – the trade uh, perhaps in, in, in things like cigarettes such that we improve health, we improve perhaps air quality uh, we, and we still allow ourselves to make money and them to have their cars? I think that, that that's an excellent question. Um, I think uh, for the state of Indiana so far uh, in, in, the, in the past 10 years, uh, we've benefited a lot uh, economically from our relationship to China obviously. There are elements of our manufacturing base including companies and factories in Bloomington that have uh, closed up here and, and moved production to Mexico and China. Um, but at the same time, the, the, net, the net record has, has been positive. China's – uh, Indiana's exports to China have increased from about 160-some million in 2000 to about 760 million last year. And China is now our sixth largest export market. To what do you attribute that? Well, we have uh, to some extent uh, followed some of the advice you've already been asking us t- to do. Um, Indiana is one of the parts of the United States where manufacturing has been able to endure the longest. Uh, where we have relative to other parts of the United States uh, lower wage costs. Um, and, but we also have very high technology capabilities, uh, well-educated population. Uh, and so we're an attractive place uh, for manufacturing in the United States. Uh, and so we've been able to export uh, machinery, chemicals, computer and electronic equipment at, at, at increasingly high rates. Uh, biotech is an area which the state and Indiana University itself is, is uh, highly interested in. 
And certainly the Chinese are focused heavily on biotech, the number of labs and, and R&D centers that they've created uh, in universities that have spun off – companies that have spun off from universities is, is increasing several fold. Uh, and so this is an area for, for immense uh, opportunity for uh, cooperation. Uh, we – Indiana obviously is also an agricultural state as well. Uh, we export soybeans uh, and some other agricultural products to, to China. In terms of uh, whether we could export biofuels or not, uh, I think at, at the moment overall the U.S. is a net importer of, of biofuels. So it will take an adjustment of the U.S.'s overall uh, energy mix I think. Uh, but in looking out to the future, uh, that certainly seems like an area where the U.S. could, could be a, a, a definite leader. And Stan, I, th I think uh, Scott has really provided a very uh, articulate uh, description of how Indiana and China uh, have much that they could acquire from each other and that's why I, I, I do think the IU uh, global strategic plan is so important to the state. Uh, many people think that it's important only to the uni university. But uh, when one reads the plan, the plan in fact uh, has, has one of its goals to assure the um, the vitality of the state of Indiana and I think Scott was uh, was quite uh, clear in suggesting how that could be done. Just a few minutes left in our program and I'm wondering, uh, are there more types of trades or partnerships between the university or the state with China that, that we have not explored or have not explored as fully which the two of you would like to see more uh, in, in the coming years here? Since I come from the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures, let me make a bid for increasing uh, study of Chinese language. Uh, currently, there's quite a big imbalance here. We have – if you look at China, um, just about every Chinese middle school student, uh, high school student, college student studies English. Uh, English is the second most common language in China and there are – in fact, there will be more – English speakers in China than in the United States soon. Not necessarily very good uh, speakers but they can read and they can carry on conversation and do research. Uh, the United States uh, now has about 50,000 students of Chinese um, and the and IU, we have about 200 out of a student population of 39,000, 40,000 here uh, and that represents a, a, a growth. Over the past, now China seems like a faraway place, uh, especially to students uh, in the Midwest. Um, but as we've seen, the trade numbers are going up. The importance of China to our economy, the important contributions Chinese culture can make to the world. Uh, China's role in global security issues is, is growing. Uh, its importance in a number of spheres, and so the uh, emphasis that we have uh, on. Studying China, learning Chinese needs to keep up with China's uh, growing importance globally and, and to the state. And I think that's simply some inertia that needs to be overcome. Um, in term, since I'm uh, involved in a research center, we have lots of exchanges with China, student le level exchanges, professor exchanges like the types that Lloyd's been on. We have less uh, research exchanges. Uh, where we make direct use of their labs and they make use of our labs. Uh, we have that at the individual level, uh, uh, professor by professor, lab by lab, but not as, an, as a university institution-wide uh, system that, that we could expand a, lo a lot upon. I know that we were considering uh, a few years ago perhaps uh, opening a joint venture type of university or program in China. Uh, we looked into it and other schools ha have gone down that path. I think that we've found uh, looking at those other examples that there are a whole lot of problems in the specifics of setting up those type of, of programs and universities that, are, that need to be uh, overcome before we go down that road. Uh, but even if we don't do that for a number of years, the type of internet-based uh, cooperation that, that we can do in a variety of curricula obviously uh, can be expanded uh, beginning now. Lloyd, what kind of things would you like to see uh, as we uh, move forward here? Well, I certainly would endorse uh, Scott's suggestion. We we find that it's much easier to bring students here, especially 
with uh, the intensive English program that uh, uh, Indiana University has. We take quite uh, great advantage of that, not only with China but with the other nations. Um, you'll have to forgive me, but my uh, focus uh, has has been for the past 30 years on, on public health and I think there is much more that Indiana University uh, can do with other um, federal agencies within the United States that have great interest in working with China, uh, not the least of which uh, include the Centers for Disease, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and uh, the National Institutes of Health, um, uh, both of which are beginning to establish ties. Illustratively, I was working at the Centers for Disease Control when China um, uh, sent many of its senior public health people to CDC in Atlanta, um, studied our CDC and Jeff Copeland, in fact, was the director of CDC at the time. He was invited to China and if you go to the Ministry of Health in China, you'll find something called the China CDC. Uh, CDC has no meaning in China um, but they call it the China CDC uh, because they wanted to replicate uh, what CDC does. So. Uh, I, I think we have this uh, expectation certainly that we would like to fulfill that the universities across nations, in this case with China, might be able to work together as our globe um, shrinks and as we have more technological capacity such as using um, uh, teleconferencing. But um, we're, we're learning more in public health that in order to address any of our major public health problems, those problems are going to be global, whether it's climate change uh, and the uh, public health uh, problems that result from that, whether it's SARS, whether uh, it's um, any of a, a wide variety of um, problems that uh, know no boundaries, no geopolitical boundaries, unless nations, which include the, uh, the national governments, work together. Um, we're not going to be able to control um, some of these diseases which could have a very serious uh, effect on humankind let alone it, its uh, economy. Uh, and I, I think that's where uh, forward-looking universities like IU could have a major role to play. I think government is looking towards IU and other universities to play that role. Well, I'd like to thank the both of you for being on the program today. I think the the future is, is bright for the collaboration between our state and our university in China and I think it's helpful to think about you know, thinking big as we, we move forward with, with some of these challenges and I think we might have to. So uh, it just remains for me to thank uh, our guests uh, and uh, engineer Michael Pashkash as well as producer Ariana Prothero in the uh, booth. I am Stan Jastrzewski. Until next week, thank you for joining us on Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.